So that comes first, then the place and the year. And once I have the place and the year, I sit down, literally sit down on a meditation cushion and think, okay, who is around in this time and place who would like their story told? And then the first character who comes to me is the character who gets the first chapter for each book. Oh, wow. So you literally meditate them into being. Yeah. Welcome to Rights for Women, a podcast all about celebrating women's voices and supporting women writers. I'm Pamela Cook, women's fiction author, writing teacher, mentor and podcaster. Before beginning today's chat, I would like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the Dharawal people, the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being recorded, along with the traditional owners of the land throughout Australia, and pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. And a quick reminder that there could be strong language and adult concepts discussed in this podcast, so please be aware of this if you have children around. Let's relax on the convo couch and chat to this week's guest. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Rights for Women. I'm recording in my home office today rather than in Virginia, the vintage caravan having just come back from a fabulous weekend at the snow with my husband and friend and fellow writer Penelope Janu and her husband. We had three beautiful days at Charlotte's Pass. The weather was glorious. The snow was fantastic. And we had an all-round fabulous time. So back today and back into it and getting ready for my next chat. My guest today on the podcast is author Sophie Green. Sophie is an author and a publisher who lives in Sydney. She's written several fiction and non-fiction books, some under other names. In her spare time, she writes about country music, which is a great passion of Sophie's on her website, Sunburnt Country Music. She's been practising yoga since 1993 and teaching it since 2002. Sophie's debut novel, The Inaugural Meeting of the Fairvale Ladies Book Club, was a top 10 bestseller and was shortlisted for the Australian Book Industry Awards for General Fiction Book of the Year 2018 and longlisted for both the Matt Ritchell Award for the New Writer of the Year in 2018 and the Indie Book Award for Debut Fiction in the same year. Sophie Green is internationally published and the Shelley Bay Ladies Swimming Circle and Thursdays at Orange Blossom House were also top 10 bestsellers. Her latest release is the Bellbird River Country Choir, and you might guess by the title, it's very much in keeping with the tone and style of Sophie's previous books. I first met Sophie back in 2011 when I was accepted for the Hachette Manuscript Development Program, and she spoke to our group of authors, there was about 11 of us at the time, at the Queensland Writers' Centre, in her capacity as a literary agent. Some years later, she left the world of agenting to become a publisher at Hachette, and a few years after that, became a published fiction author. So I'm really interested to talk to Sophie, not just about her new book, which I'm currently reading, I'm almost at the end and really enjoying it, but about the intersection of her passions, yoga, country music and writing. So grab a cuppa and join Sophie Green and I on the Rights for Women Convo Couch. Okay, Sophie, welcome to the Rights for Women Convo Couch. Thank you very much, Pamela. 
great to see you. And I want to really want to talk to you, obviously, about the book. So I thought it might be a good idea because there's lots of other things I want to talk to you about too. But I wanted to start there, maybe, and then dig into the backstory a little bit. Let's start with the Bellbird River Country Choir. Can you tell listeners what it's about? It is about five women who live in a town called Bellbird River. One of them is recently arrived. Her name is Alex and she's a sole parent with a young daughter who's in primary school and Alex is a high school teacher and she was living in Sydney and it's 1998 and the Olympics are coming and Sydney's getting more and more bloated and she feels like she needs more time with her daughter and a country town may provide the solution. So she arrives in this town and soon discovers there is a choir and in that choir is a woman called Janine who is the town baker who's in her 30s and somewhat stuck in her life and uh, and at a loss as to how to move out of that stuck place. But she's also a painter and she has a brother she's very close to, but he has his own difficulties and that's part of why she feels stuck. There's also Debbie who recently moved to the area. She doesn't live in town. She lives on a property outside of town where she also works and she's made some mistakes that she's trying to move on from except so those mistakes led to her being separated from her children, and that's something that she's trying to deal with. And then we have Victoria, who is the town matriarch, whose family's been in the area for a long time, and she feels somewhat that she runs the town, and she may not be incorrect about that. And then her yeah, cousin, Gabrielle, character. Yeah. who's been away for several decades because she's an opera singer who now can't reach her top notes thanks to some surgery that was ostensibly meant to fix her voice. And so she's landed back at home. She's landed back with the person who loves her the most, who is Victoria. And she needs that that kind of sucker and support while she's recovering physically. And also, I think, dealing with her own relationship with the town. And the choir is, of course, beneath her, but she joins because Victoria thinks it will be good for her to keep singing while she's on a break from her career. They all meet in the choir. They're not all friends necessarily. I have said in the past that I think the love story in the novel is between Victoria and Gabrielle. And so they have their own little axis of something going on. And and then there are other relationships with other people. Obviously, from your explanation, it's a really relationship-based story. And looking back at your other titles, we had the inaugural meeting of the Fair Vale Ladies Book Club. Then there was one set it around a women's swimming circle, the Orange Blossom House around the yoga retreat, and now the choir. So it's there's obviously that connection there or that thread through the books of this network of women and particularly in particular the female relationships. I'm really interested in how you've gone about drumming up ideas for each of those books and where the initial, or, or particularly with this one, obviously the Country Choir, the newest, but where that original germ of the idea comes from and then how you go about fleshing that out. <laughs> So the Bellbird River came about from my own experience in music. So I was in a band a few years ago and it was a country music covers band. And uh, when I joined that band, I was a huge snob about country music. I, I have a background as a musician. I've learned classical piano for years. I've been in school choirs. I've now been playing guitar for a while. I even, for my sins, did recorder for more years than I thought of while I was at school. Ended up in a recorder group. Still can't believe it. But so I, music is a huge part of my life and I have, in fact, been writing about Australian country music for the last 11 years. But that was because of the band I was in, not preceding it. So when I joined this band, we were called the Sweetie Darling Sweeties because my oh, friend ran the band I loved Absolutely Fabulous. And to this day, we call each other Sweetie or Darling. And we played the Tamworth Country Music Festival. And as I mentioned, I was a bit of a snob about country music because I'd really only knew American country and American radio country. I didn't know about the wealth of other 
right. and country music there was. And so I just thought, Ugh. But we went to Tamworth and I, as I'm very fond of saying, my life was completely transformed for the better because the richness of music and talent that I found there and I just it completely blew my mind to use a cliched phrase, but yeah. I just remember walking around the streets going, what is happening here? <laughs> what am I experiencing? I just couldn't believe it. And every year that I've gone since, and it hasn't been every single year, but every year that I've gone, I had that same experience. I was there in April this year because it was postponed from January. Right. Yeah. And everyone was so happy to be there because we hadn't had this festival for a few years. And the performers look, just looked like they were going to explode with happiness and the punters were so happy. And so it was just, but it was really just an extension of what I've always found at Tamworth, which is absolute joy in being there and in the music and appreciation for the music and for Australian stories. Part of what I realised about Tamworth after I'd gone a couple of times was that it was Australia's largest storytelling festival for Australians. Oh, wow. uh, writers' festivals tend to prioritise uh, writers from overseas as their headline acts. Music festivals do the same thing. For a while there was an Australian music festival called Homebake, which was really That's successful, right. but then that went away and the big day out always had headliners from overseas. What really drove it home to me was leaving Tamworth one year and Casey Chambers is one of the queens of Tamworth. Yeah. And as I drove out of town, I saw a poster for Blues Fest and there she was not in the, even in the second tier. She was uh, in the third tier. Yeah. Stuffed in the middle, alphabetical with everyone else. So I just thought, what? Like what? <laughs> no, she's an incredible artist and she's really significant to a whole lot of people. And so I just realised that Tamworth was giving Australian artists and storytellers that platform and that priority and signifying that they were important in that way. And also there were tens of thousands of people who were turning up in the January heat to see this and to get Australian stories. So that was really interesting to me. So after we played at Tamworth and my thoughts about country music were changed, I then started uh, really listening to a lot of Australian country. I always say that Becky Cole's song Lazy Bones was my gateway drug to Australian country music because we played that song in the band it's an early song of Becky's. It's really clever. She's still a very clever, funny artist to listen to. So that whole area for me, that part of Australia is, is music bound and music related. And then I thought about whenever I'm thinking about novels, I think, okay, what's a what's an engine here I can use or what's how can I bring people together and what might be useful from a storytelling point of view? And a group in music is, yeah. is interesting. And I didn't think a band would work because that's that's actually somewhat limited. You've got maximum really four or five members if it's a country music band, sometimes six or sometimes a bit more. But a choir has potential to be quite large and therefore mm. for telling a story, it's really useful. So I thought, okay, choir, and I've been in choirs uh, as a younger person, so I understand that. But I also understand the politics of being in any musical group, including in a band, and I think they apply across the board. But right, I'm going to have to set it near Tamworth. And because <laughs> it just, no other place made sense. But I didn't want to set it in Tamworth or in a real town near Tamworth because I thought people who live there might think that a bit strange. So I looked at the map and relied on my memories of having driven the roads going into Tamworth. So the Corindai Road, which turns into the Oxley Highway or the New England Highway. And I thought, right, whereabouts in that area can I feasibly put a town and roads? that go to that town so that it fits. And I found my spot between Corindai and Tamworth just a little to the west and looked at the map and thought, yeah, 
That'll do. That's where England's going. Yeah. Yeah. I love so much of what you said, Sophie, because I love country music, but you were saying initially, I really only skim the surface. It's the stuff you hear on the radio and my daughters are into it a little bit. So I listen to some stuff, but I've always meant to go to Tamworth. I've never done it. Please. Always wanted to be a Yeah, I've never done it. So you really inspired me. Yeah. And I was looking at your blog as well. And like, that's a great way, I think, to just check out people around. Yeah. That's what I intend. Yeah. I cover all sorts of artists from emerging to established and people who might have only had one album out, people who've had several albums out, or just sometimes artists have only just put singles out because for young artists these days, that's what they're doing. They're looking at streaming platforms and thinking, it's a single every three months. They may never think of an album or even an EP. So yeah, I'll talk to all sorts of different people and I find Australian country music has equal representation of female artists with male artists at the top as well yep. as emerging. They're a genre, it's a genre of music that has professional development attached because there's the Academy of Country Music and there's also the Junior Academy of Country Music. So I have interviewed artists who went to the Junior Academy at 10, I think. The- wow. She's not now 10. She's now in her 20s, but yeah, she yeah. went at 10. And I think when you have a genre that says to 10-year-olds, we can take you for professional development, that's really interesting. Oh, it's very inspiring. And I'm just thinking back through your other titles. So obviously you're into yoga and there was a yoga retreat in Orange Blossom House. Is that correct? Class, yeah. Yoga. Class. Sorry, that's why I didn't get to mention the, yeah. the other title. I've been teaching yoga for 20 years and practicing yeah. for almost 30 and then Shelly Bay or well, I swim and oh, I wondered at, them out there. <laughs> <laughs> I swim at a harbour beach in Sydney because I lived right near this particular beach at, but harbour beach for dramatic purposes is not as interesting as the ocean but what I've observed at this beach for years now is this cluster, these clusters of people who gather they don't necessarily swim together but they'll chat on the sand and then they've been there for years so I looked at that and thought well, there's something going on there and I know a lot of people who swim. Really, though, the relationships in Shelley Bay were inspired by my um, relationship with my best friend, Jen, to whom the book is dedicated because we play tennis against each other. We don't play with each other. We're not interested in playing doubles together. We are only interested in playing against each other and that's right. how we met in a group tennis lesson. We both played as children, let it go for a while, went back to group lessons as adults and met there. So our friendship was forged in sport okay, and in also being competitive against each other. And so I, I took that into Shelley Bay. And then Fairvale was inspired sitting on a bus from Catherine to Darwin in the afternoon and it's a four-hour bus trip and the light was fading and I looked across these amazing colours and the landscape and started to make notes about what I was seeing and then started to think about how people connect across those distances. And that led me to think about my mother and my godmother who live six hours away from each other and have done for most of their lives, but they talk all the time and their friendship's extremely close. So that's Mm. what prompted Bever. That's great. I was going to say too, the other thing when you were talking about the inspiration for Bird River that whole thing of the choir, it, the choir is so communal too, isn't it? Yeah. Like it's, you have this fairly large group of people that come together for the as the choir, but then they're part of this wider community and they're playing to the community or singing to the community and so many events involving the community where the choir yeah. performs. Yeah, and music, I think, being a great connector and creator of communities and I hope to put into the text what I feel I get out of music and what I hope everyone feels, which is something that's uplifting, sometimes challenging. That's part of the construction of musical pieces. Every 
great symphony has its moments where you feel like you're being challenged and then there is the joy of the resolution of it. So I hoped when I was writing it to put that in rhythmically and I am someone who pays attention to the rhythm of words and I can't think of a bigger chapter needs another beat or is the rhythm of that particular thing. So I just took that to another extreme. (laughs) I guess when I was writing Belbo River and thought, okay, I want this to feel like the reader is an audience member watching a choir. Yeah. Oh, it's such a great idea. The characters in the book, as you mentioned, they're all women at at turning points in their lives, aren't they? You've got single mum, Alex, she's trying to establish herself in the town with a daughter who doesn't want to be there. She'd rather be back in Sydney with her grandmother. And then we've got Janine, who, as you say, she's stuck in this rut and really quite a sad character, I feel. Janine, really want to talk about her as uh, all of them. Debbie, too, is working as a nanny on a local property, but she's got this issue that has estranged her from her children. And Victoria, who is also estranged from her husband, but then has this relationship (laughs) with Gabrielle. And then you have the whole cast of characters around it. But when you sit down to write a novel like this, Sophie, what comes first for you? Is it this sort of whole idea of the choir or do you get the characters and then develop them? What I guess what's your process? The device comes first by device of something like choir or yoga class or whatever it is because I I want to think about how I can bring these people together and uh, possibly drive them apart. So that comes first, then the place and the year. And once I have the place and the year, I sit down, literally sit down on a meditation cushion and think, okay, who is around in this time and place who would like their story told? And then the first character who comes to me is the character who gets the first chapter for each book. Oh, wow. So you literally meditate them into being. Yeah. Just like, all right, who's out there? I know you're around. And sometimes it takes me a while to figure out what their names are. And I, the, it's not like they tell me their names. I always try to make the names appropriate for the time. If it's a name that's popular now, it can't work in a character for an, a book that's set in the past. So I look at birth records for around the time that character would have been born to see what names were popular. Don't always necessarily choose a popular name. Victoria, she just presented as a Victoria. And that name is... Never really popular or unpopular. It's yeah, one of those yeah. names, a bit like Elizabeth. I just thought she's a Victoria. And then Gabrielle, I don't think I checked birth records for her. I think she just very firmly told me that was her name. But sometimes they, they can take a while to reveal their stories. Janine took quite a while, actually. I knew there was something lingering there and it took me a few weeks actually to to peel back all the layers of her. And that's part of the mystery, as you know, of writing stories and writing about characters is that you just it's a really weird process in a lot of ways these are people I've invented yet I feel like I haven't I feel like they've come to me and therefore I need to uncover their stories and they'll tell me in their own good time and sometimes it's beyond the creation of that first draft it's getting further into it but we get there in the end so once you get the basic ideas for the characters do you then just start writing and then develop the characters as you go do you do character profiles how does that work for you I do a lot of planning and I'm doing increasing amounts of planning with each book I don't know why or it's just I like the planning and I won't admit it to myself so I I do character profiles based on something called the 12 questions which is from an author called Francesca Lilia Block who's an American young adult magical realist writer whose first book Witsy Bat I read many years ago and fell in love with and Francesca wrote a book called The Thorn Necklace which is a memoir crossed with writing craft stuff and I don't usually read books about writing but I read this because I love her work and so the 12 questions were just a list of questions she uses when she's creating characters and stories 
So I do those for each character, although some of the questions apply to the whole novel. I just fill out the ones that are relevant for that character. And then, and that can take a while because I, that's where I do a lot of thinking about who they are, what the stakes are. And then I actually will put some of the key points into a different document. So I'll do major plot points for each character and that will take the form of how their arc works. So it's, it is, what are the stakes? What do they value? All these sorts of things that tell me a lot about who they are. Uh, then I will often do a time-based sort of planning and the book I've just delivered for next year, I've done it month by month and rather than season by season, which is how a lot of them go. But it's just, uh, that helps me understand what, what is happening for whom and when. And then the final master document that really governs everything is what I call the grid. It's a table in Microsoft Word and I color code it for each character who has a point of view. And that's so I can see the flow of who's talking to the reader at any given mm. time. And uh, that will change. That's a living document. So I will plot usually the first maybe 15 chapters and then I'll start writing and then invariably things will change and I'll spend some time reworking the grid. And then I don't fill out the last chapter slots until I am quite close to the end. So I never think I know exactly how it's ending, although I might have an idea, but I just wait to see how things play out. And then when I think I'm getting pretty close, I'll start to fill in those last few rows. And even then, like, just from the one I just delivered, I was feeling quite smug about, I was like, oh yeah. And then I thought, no, there are things you need to see earlier. So I did have it all planned to the end. And then I made myself a list of six other chapters that I needed to put in earlier. So I did yeah. those after I'd finished writing. Yeah. yeah. And then because I guess when you're using that sort of fairly planned process, but you still have to allow for those things where the characters just take on a life of their own, don't you? And decide yeah. they're going to do this thing and not that thing. And that's always what changes it, the characters yeah. <laughs> doing their yeah. thing. And, and I always go with it. I never swear at them or think that I won't do it. I just think, oh, well, that's where the story's gone. And yeah. Okay. That's yeah. what we do now. So the next time I sit down to write, I will take the time to, to go to the grid instead of actually going back to the manuscript. I'll just look at everything and think, all right, what needs to change now because of what this character has done to me. Yeah. <laughs> How dare they have minds of their own. Exactly. <laughs> and what about the sort of secondary characters, Sophie? Do they Are they people who just appear in the manuscript yeah. as you're yeah. writing? Yeah. I knew in Velvet River I should have a choir master, so Warwick was planned, but then members of the choir were not planned and they just popped up here and there and there are some other subsidiary characters who – who's appeared as solutions to, like in Janine's case, it was partly a, what is she doing to herself? And then a character called Ross appeared. And I was like, oh, that's why. That's why she hates herself so much, basically. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, and then Janine's parents pop up as well. And her brother actually was not in the plan, original plan at all. But when I started writing, I just knew she had this brother. And I started to think, okay, why is he so important to her and what's going on here? So sometimes even significant subsidiary characters like him can appear opening on once I've started writing. But I think that's because once the writing starts, the gates are open and other people can walk through them. Much as I invite those main characters to come in, those subsidiary characters can also walk through those gates and they do. And they often surprise me and I just think, oh, Okay, what am I meant to do with you? Yeah. <laughs> do you fit into the story or are you someone I'm just gonna have to wrangle? Yeah, yeah. And some of them are a good source of humor too, aren't they? The way that they bounce off some of the main characters and just, you know, insert a, a little bit of a spark or 
different yeah. type of storyline. Yeah. Sometimes I'm just using them for that. Yeah. Yes. That's <laughs> right. I just think that's your purpose. Show me something about a character. <laughs> Be useful. <laughs> you have said it, obviously, in the country, it's country choir and it's in this sort of fictional town that you've created. As you say, it's set around the seasons and at the start of each of those seasonal sections, we tend to get a little lovely description of mm-hmm part of the environment or wherever the character is at the time. Do you see the setting itself as a character? Not so much in this book, I certainly in Fairvale, and that was just because the Northern Territory was the reason that the whole mm. book club existed. And But then possibly did myself a disservice then because ever since then, the most regular editorial feedback I receive is, Need bossy. Okay. <laughs> like, but I always try to say, but I had all that stuff about the Northern Territory because it was so significant to the story itself. And in Shelley Bay, quite a bit as well, because I wanted them to be looking around and seeing cliff faces and whatnot. Yeah. Since then, yes, I'm quite mindful that if I don't put it in, I will receive the note that it has to go in. Okay. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's just being honest about how it goes. Yeah. It's not my, yeah. after Fair Valley, it wasn't my natural inclination to put it in, but just in Fair Valley, it, it that I started with that. I started yeah. with looking out that bus window and, and watching the scenery change. And it's so, yeah, it impresses so much upon you, doesn't it, that it has to be part of the whole story. You were talking about your sort of planning process and then the writing process. Sophie, how do you find the whole revision and editing process? Which part of all those different processes are you generally happiest with and not so happy about? Look, I'm not someone who likes revising. And that's not because I think what I've done is perfect. It's more just that whenever I receive the notes, I feel like a failure. And uh, I just, <laughs> as we all do, I failed. And I'm really fond of talking about the four tendencies framework developed by Gretchen Rubin. And I am an upholder in Gretchen's framework. And we really don't like to be criticised because we feel like we try very hard. And so I think my my natural inclination is to not receive feedback like that. I do always know that things need to be improved upon and rewritten. I just don't particularly want to see it in a report. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I relish the chance to go back to the manuscript and spend more time with the characters. I think I'm getting better at it because I realise that it isn't a chance to do that rather than necessarily me having failed. I can look at it as more time and again, with the copy edit and with the proofread, I enjoy spending time with those characters. I think the writing process itself I love just because it feels, it has always felt like meditation mm-hmm. in that it, when I teach yoga classes, they're the most purely meditative moments of my life really because I'm so present in that time and I never think about anything else but what I'm doing right there. And I'm fine with writing, the same experience happens. I can just start writing and then I can look around and think, what time is it? <laughs> what, yeah. what has been going on? And that's a beautiful feeling and it's rare in human life that we get to do yeah. that. So that's a real treat. And and I feel like I'm just alone with these characters and in the story and then it's over and everything else rushes in for a while. So okay. I guess the writing process is my favourite part. The planning process I quite enjoy. I never thought I would be someone who planned, but I enjoy that. And then revising, I'll come to enjoy it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And are you someone that sets a word count, Sophie, when you're drafting or Uh, a a time frame or how do you go about that? uh, The contract sets the word count. So I tend to go or thereabouts. I always leave room for additions in the the revising process because usually they will ask me for more. So I tend to deliver a bit under the word count. Or if I've delivered right on it, then I know I'm going to have to lose something that I've 
already put in there. So I'm pretty careful about that because I might want to clutch onto a chapter that they tell me has to go. But time-wise, it's never much. There's never much time. I have mm-hmm. around three months. Usually this year has been very challenging. I lost a month due to something going on in my family. And I, yeah, it was the most contracted process to deliver next year's book. So right. I, I lost a month and then I kept losing other bits of time. That became fairly tense towards yeah, the end. I can imagine. But <laughs> you have- before. Yeah, get me up earlier. <laughs> Unusual. That's right. Gets earlier and earlier by the day. Yeah. So obviously you work as a publisher, you've got a full-time job, you're working to contract, you're writing to contract. And as you say, things happen in life that mean you don't always have as much time for the writing as you've liked. Have you got any tricks around creating that those time pockets of time or, or how you organize your time? I think oh look, I don't watch a lot of television. I think that's actually a big one because it can you can easily lose time that way. So I don't tend to engage in things that are, that could leak time the way that could be. It doesn't mean I don't watch TV. I do and I love it. But I just don't tend to watch a lot of it. I am naturally an owl in, uh, rather than a lark in terms of my attention. But what I will do, as I have done in the past few weeks, is is actually get up really early and I have to move first. And so for me, part of managing my energy levels, my time and everything, it comes back to doing some kind of movement, exercise, sport every single day, occasionally having a rest day because everyone says you should, but I don't like doing that because I think that I work on that principle of energy out, energy in. So if I'm expending energy by exercising and getting the endorphins, all that sort of stuff, then that really helps me, I find, and then I can settle down and and concentrate uh, at a time of day early when I'm not usually as alert as I would be Mm. late at night, but just to manage Yes, going to work or everything else. It's easier for me to predict what happens at the start of the day than at the end. Yeah. So I'd rather get up early and just deal with that for a few weeks than than leave it till the end of the day and worry that I may not have the time or maybe it's too tired or something like that. So yeah, uh, I I just got to get through it. That's part of it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's also part of being an upholder. Just do it in our motto. I remember reading the Gretchen book years ago and Gretchen Rubin, and uh, I can't even remember what I am. So. That probably says something in itself that I can't remember. <laughs> well, help me, just, just help me understand why I had been the way I was at school in particular. And there are certainly downsides to being an upholder, but I also think it really helps in the workplace to understand or try to understand which of your colleagues are certain tendencies so you can work with them in different ways. And I could go on an extended riff about this, but uh, suffice to say, The Four Tendencies by Gretchen Rubin is a really interesting book. <laughs> okay. Oh, actually, there's one thing you said then that just made me curious you mentioned the owl and the lark and there are these lovely little sketches at the beginning of the seasons in bell bird river did you happen to draw that i did yes Uh, yeah i thought you might have some of them were photos i took myself actually because i was stalking like wildlife and taking photos of birds and i was like oh i can use those Um, yes i did do those so it was just a an idea I had at a certain point, I thought it might be nice to do. And then it became a, a, a thing where I thought, oh, now I've set myself this task, I have to do it and quickly. <laughs> <laughs> and while we're on illustrations, of course, your books have these absolutely gorgeous covers, Yeah, starting back with the Fairvale Ladies Book Club. And I'm guessing that you must love them as much as readers do because they're just oh, Absolutely. So the designer is Krista Moffat, who works under the name Christabella Designs. And Krista designs a lot of book covers. So any bookshop you walk into will have many of Krista's covers in it. Yeah. So every time a cover comes out, I think it's the best. I thought Orange Blossom House was the best. 
and she couldn't possibly do anything more lovely than that. And then Melbourne River turned up and I thought, okay. <laughs> yeah, and it's great for branding too, isn't it? Because they're so recognisable. Yeah, hopefully. Oh, that's the idea. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, I think they're beautiful. And really that Australian flavour too, like you say, and you're telling Australian stories, so it's really reflective of that. I wanted to go back a little bit. Prior to writing fiction, you mentioned you've written the country music blog for some time. Did you say you've been doing that for about 10 years or so? Or? 11, yeah. 11, wow. Yeah. So how did you find that transition to writing fiction when you were writing more factual and non-fiction sort of stuff? I think that I'm, no, I am sure that I could not write fiction without having written about music first because okay. that trained me to write to an audience because having a website, I could see that the stats, I knew there were people reading and therefore I started to <laughs> when I was communicating with people rather than just vlogging for my own entertainment. Also, I think trying to describe music in a way that was not technical but try, but was conveying the experience of listening to whatever the song was and also trying to amalgamate a lot of information about the artist or whatever was relevant was really good training just in terms of how to tell a story in a succinct way. And from there, uh, look, I really just had to take a leap and see yeah. if I could write fiction. And it took a bit of tinkering, a bit of refining, but it was really one of those cases I think it is for a lot of people if you don't try you won't know and it may not have worked that I would have tried and the same with the music I just I started that blog at a particular time when I really needed it and had no thought other than maybe I would be sent some music to listen to (laughs) early and wouldn't that be great because music was such a big part of my life and been to see Australian bands a lot, not country bands, but other bands. And yeah, now 11 years later, I, it's almost like another job, but I'm don't. i not paid for it and it's, yeah. it's a hobby and I do it out of love. But tonight, for example, I have two interviews to do right. and another one tomorrow night, one on Thursday night, that sort of thing. So but when it's, it's a passion like work. that, it's not really work, is it? It's not hard because you love no. what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. And also I've, I think that uh, actually an important element of it is that having the opportunity to talk to so many songwriters over the years has really helped me as a writer of fiction because I've basically had insight into how they work and what their processes can. There are a lot of consistencies and also they have their own individuality in terms of the songs they're producing, but that's been a masterclass because I get to interview all these different artists ask them how they work, how they create, where their ideas come from, all those sorts of things. So Mm -hmm. that's been really useful too. And how would you say, you talked before, Sophie, about meditating your characters into being type thing. How else would you say your yoga practice has helped you with your fiction writing? I think it's probably the teaching more than the practice. I became aware very soon after I started teaching that I was essentially creating a story in the class. So the I think these days a lot of classes aren't 90 minutes long, but when I was first teaching, they're all 90 minutes long. And that was a good amount of time to create an arc of beginning, middle and end for the class. So I would think about the sequence and it was a creative practice to create that sequence every week. I would come up with a different sequence every week. Then I would I knew it would change when I was in each class. So I was never teaching the same class twice. I wasn't trained to do that either. The teacher I had for a very long time never taught the same class twice. And that's challenging creatively because yeah. you have to, you have, you can have your structure, but then you have to leap into the unknown. And that's like writing fiction as well. So my response to my characters changing the story on me comes from teaching and having things change. And by that, I, someone walks into class I've never seen before and they're pregnant and they've got a knee injury. 
So I need to shift and change what I'm thinking of so that they're not left out. I don't want that person just sitting in the corner. And that requires really quick shifting and changing. And in the moment, as I'm moving, as they're moving, all those sorts of things, I think that's a lot like writing fiction. So in the moment when a character presents me with a change, I can resist it. Sure, I can resist it. It probably won't turn out to be the best idea if I resist it. It's better to just Mm -hmm. go with it, see what happens, and then shift and change again if I need to. But having said that, being on the mat, look, I don't know who I am without my practice. I've been doing it for so long now. I just, I can't even envisage what it's like to exist without that bedrock of knowledge within me, within my day-to-day existence. There've been a lot of challenges as a student, which is part of the practice if you dedicate yourself to it. Physical challenges, emotional challenges, ego challenges, all sorts of things. My current teacher, once when she was teaching a balance pose and balancing on one leg, for something. And she said, as we stepped into it, she said, have courage. And I remember thinking, yeah, that's part of what this practice is for, to teach us that to do things like this that are relatively small and the stakes are low. I may fall over out of yeah. the balance pose, but that still requires me to be courageous to a little extent. And you can take that out into the rest of your life and I can take it into my writing. I can have the courage to show up on the page knowing I may fall over, but I've already tested that out on the mat. So even to this day, I was practicing this morning and it's always new. It's always interesting. There's always something that it offers me. And uh, I feel really lucky that I discovered it when I did at such a young age and have had teachers, I've just had two, but they've both been extraordinary women and taught me so much. My current teacher, who I've been following for a long time, does a lot of work around creativity as well, creativity in the body. And so the practices I did with her... Oh, what was before I started writing fiction. And I think they also fed into it, just the way she mm. was able to teach, to unlock certain things in the body and help me understand how our physicality is related to our creativity. And I think that mm. fed into Thursdays at Orange Blossom House. She directly. sounds amazing. Who's that? She is, her, name's, her name's Shiva Ray. She's an American teacher and she's very well known in yoga circles. She's one of these teachers who goes and teaches at Burning Man and she has all these DVDs. But And I've followed her for years. I first learned from her in person in 2008. But what happened over the pandemic was that her globetrotting teaching career stopped. Yeah. She started teaching from her balcony on video. And so since then, it's like this opportunity to actually be part of a, quite a small group of people who have access to her every week and... And she, she teaches videos live. At, at the moment, the time zones aren't in my favor, so I'm doing the recordings. But once we shift into daylight savings and they shift out of it, I'll be able to do it live again. And she's, she is an incredibly inspirational person. I, again, could go off on a tangent, but she has a depth of knowledge that she's very generous in sharing. And she synthesizes all of that and is intensively creative herself. And mm. again, doesn't she has her set sequences but I've been studying with her long enough now to know that she's she just will change them. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. even though they're the things she documents in her teacher training, when she's in the moment teaching, she wants to go off and do something. It's like, let's just do that. Yeah. So, oh, and she's really, very playful, yeah. She's a wonderful person and a very fierce warrior for the people, mm, I think. Fantastic. How would you say that working as a publisher has impacted your writing, Sophie? I don't actually know because I published nonfiction. So, and that's quite a different, nonfiction publishing is actually quite creative because you start from an idea often and uh, and then try to envisage that finished book and take it along the path. I think if anything, it's part of the suite of things I've done that have honed my instincts about 
wanting to communicate with people. So whether it's as a publisher wanting to publish books for a readership or writing about music and communicating with people or, or teaching, I think it's all part of that rather than mm. being distinctly separate from any of them. And recently you had a great series of tips for writers on Instagram, on your Instagram page, which were really good. I, I really enjoyed watching them and they were nice and short and just really snappy. But how do you find that whole sort of business of social media in terms of being an author? How do you manage that? Are you into it? <laughs> Would you rather not be doing it? What do you think? I was so heavily written. I only just started an Instagram account as an author last year. I was barely on Facebook and barely on Twitter, but once got me into doing things like those videos was actually my country music life. I had done interviews for years. I love interviewing, but transcribing those interviews and writing them up was taking too long. So last year I didn't do any, but then publicists I knew were saying, think about doing interviews again. And towards the end of last year, I thought, oh, maybe I'll do a podcast. Maybe I'll do audio interviews. And then one publicist I dealt with quite a bit or deal with quite a bit said, oh, do you want to do the interview on Zoom? And I said, oh, would the others be happy to be on video? She said, oh, yeah, that's fine. And then I thought, oh, video, haven't thought about that. So I taught myself how to use iMovie and Canva and GarageBand and all the things I need to know to be able to edit something and put a put video out. And that got me comfortable being on camera because I, I really wasn't keen on it before. But then I decided to take my own advice, Pamela, along the lines of <laughs> get over yourself. So one of the tips I have, get out of your own way is another one. So I thought just this is people want to see the artists. You're going to have to put yourself on camera in order to show the artists. So just get over it. And having done that a few times, I just thought, okay, fine. I'll just, whatever. I can do these tips. And I wanted to do the tips because they're the sorts of things I'm asked about quite often when I'm Mm -hmm. asked for advice, whether as a publisher or as an author, people say, what are your top tips? And I just thought, I'll write down everything I've ever said. And then make a little video and I just shot it on the iPhone. And so I think it's a long way of answering your question by saying I'm now comfortable with it. I wasn't for a while. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And you've been doing quite a bit of promotional work for Bellbird River. How do you love like getting out into libraries and things like that? I do actually. Again, it's one of those things that initially I thought, oh, who wants to come and see me talk? And I am naturally quite a shy person. Which can make it really hard to actually put yourself out there in front of people. Yeah. Yeah. But I think having taught yoga for a long time is the best training because I had to put myself in front of a class and teach and hold mm-hmm. the space. And I do think of events as pretty much exactly that. No, I always think it's amazing that people turn up to listen to me talk about it or watch me talk about a book. Wild. Why would anyone do that? (laughs) So I'm always really grateful that someone turns up and I always say, whoever turns up, it's perfect. So if the librarian says, oh, it's this many people, is that okay? I just say, yeah, whoever turns up, it's perfect. Yeah. Well, I am going to, in a minute, ask you, I've got four curly questions for our Patreon supporters at Rights for Women. But before we get to that, I've got a couple of quick ones. What's next? Can we have any clues as to what the next book's going to be about? I can't tell you what it's about, but I will say it's set on the Sunshine Coast in Queensland. Okay. So, and that's an area I know very well. I've been going there since I was a baby on a regular basis. And my parents drove over the hills, saw Noosa Heads and thought, that looks like a great place. Yeah. That's where it's set and it has many main characters. So I have four. Okay. Yeah. Look forward to that. And I like to ask authors at the end of the podcast chat, what would you say is at the heart of your writing? Look, I always say I try to write meaningful entertainment. 
So I don't know if that's the sort of answer you're looking for, but whatever works for you. I, someone asked me the other day, who did I have a reader in mind when I first started writing fiction? I said, yes, my mother taught me to read. She is a voracious reader herself. She is not someone who has ever paid attention to genres. She would not know if something is literary fiction or whatever. She just wants to read a good story. She just wants to be entertained. Now, she comes from a nursing background and her work involved a lot of pain and trauma, as in witnessing it. And I think that's why she wanted to be entertained. Because mm. when I was younger, I used to think, oh, don't you want to read these serious stories? And she just, I just always wanted to be entertained. But she also likes meaningful stories with her entertainment. So I think that's how I honed that idea that I'd like to provide meaningful entertainment. Because mm. We all need a bit of distraction, but it's nice if it has another layer to it. And if the layer's not picked up on, fine. If it's just entertaining, that's great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It certainly works in Belbird River Country oh, Choir. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Noah. <laughs> so that's it for our main interview. Thank you very right. much for that. Thanks for listening to Rights for Women. I hope you've enjoyed my chat with this week's guest. If you did, I'd love it if you could add a quick rating or review wherever you get your podcasts so others can more easily find the episodes. Don't forget to check out the backlist on the Rights for Women website. So much great writing advice in the library there. And you can also find the transcript of today's chat on the website too. You can find details on the website on how to support the podcast through Patreon and get exclusive access to the extended audio and video of the monthly craft episode. And you can connect with me through the website at rightsforwomen.com on Instagram and Twitter at W4W Podcast, the Facebook page Rights for Women. Find me and my writing at pamelacook.com.au. Have a great week, and remember, every word you write, you're one word closer to typing the end. <laughs> <laughs>